This podcast is sponsored by Drax. As the UK's largest renewable electricity generator, Drax plays a critical role in UK energy security. They have committed to invest £2.5 billion in new green energy infrastructure, creating jobs and growth across the country. Find out more at Drax.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. As the newspapers are filled with warnings of potential blackouts, a row is brewing over how the government should address the energy crisis. The Climate Minister has this morning said the government will not be launching a public information campaign on reducing household energy use this winter. This comes and reports that Jacob Rees-Mogg, the new business secretary, had signed off one only to be overruled by number 10. James, can you talk us through the dynamic here? Is this this trust ultimately taking her view that the government should not interfere too much into people's lives? So as Liz Truss said in her conference speech, she doesn't like the idea of government telling people how to live their lives. And I think she worried that telling people to turn the radiators off in rooms that they don't use, to turn the heating off when they left their house, was too bossy, too nannying. I think there are two problems with this approach. One is that, you know, that, 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 uh, that someone like Liz Truss would believe that, you know, that the price signal should do the job. Well, the government has actually interfered to limit the extent to which the price signal can do the job by capping the unit price of energy. Now, the unit price of energy is still high, but it's not as high as it would be if the market was doing its job. I mean, the second problem is that... We are in a struggle with Vladimir Putin in which he is trying to weaponize energy. And I mean, there is a kind of case for a kind of collective national effort to try and reduce energy usage so that not only do we avoid blackouts in this country, but so that we can export more energy to our to our democratic allies. And I think there is a there, I think that that is the two reasons why. I think a fifteen million pound campaign, which is which is which is very little in terms of overall government expenditure, would have been a sensible step. Isabel, any sense of how this is landing with the wider party? We we know that this trust is pretty under fire at the moment on a, on a few fronts. Do you get the sense that MPs view this campaign as particularly important? I think, as James says, fifteen million pounds is not a massive amount of government expenditure, and. If you talk to Conservative MPs, they are quite keen that by whatever method their constituents are aware that there are ways of reducing demand that don't necessarily mean them sitting in the darkness. And that's the real worry of Conservative MPs who I was talking to at conference, is that the government's not actually being honest about the risk of blackouts. So you have warnings from, you know, from Ofgem, from National Grid and so on about the the possibility of blackouts. And that is something that, that ministers really are, are just in denial about. They don't want to accept that this may well be something that happens this winter. That's what Conservative MPs are frustrated about, not just because they feel that the government has failed to develop a, a decent energy supply policy over the 12 years that it's had, or indeed that it's still not in their view, doing enough on supply or indeed on demand when it comes to um, retrofitting homes with insulation or indeed mandating that new homes are built in a way that is fit for purpose rather than requiring retrofitting within the next five years in order to meet net zero. So they feel as though there's, there's a sort of abdication of responsibility from ministers on things that really aren't nannying, but which are 
the long term planning that people leave to government and that people, you know, pay their taxes and, and, and vote people into government, hoping that they'll do on their behalf. But James, there will be some incentive in the sense of, firstly, as you say, bills are still going up. So people are looking at probably double the amount they spent last year on their energy bills, which could act as a deterrent. And secondly, the national grid are bringing through a measure. I think energy companies are looking at this idea that if you have a smart meter and if you use your appliances at night, you know, they would give you £10 a day for doing your washing, you know, uh, you know, putting the washing machine on when you go to bed essentially rather than running it during the day when there's a greater demand for for energy i i think that this the challenge as well i think Isabel hit on a, on a, on a very important point here which is insulation would do a lot we have lots of you know i mean and i think this is one thing governments have repeatedly struggled with they've come up with schemes to try and persuade people to lag their loft and, and it just hasn't worked i think i think some steps on that would be sensible and kind of proactive insulation campaign. I think it is. I think it is also just an interesting aspect of this story that Jacob Rees-Mogg was in favour of the campaign, which I think is is interesting. Which is you wouldn't, you know, he is not a, a kind of natural person for for telling people how to live their lives. So I think I think there is a there is a tell there about the level of concern in the in that department about how energy supplies might hold up this winter. Now, Isabel, in other news, Liz Truss has a new friend. It was touch and go for a bit. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so having refused during the leadership contest to say whether Emmanuel Macron uh, was friend or foe of Britain, um, they're now best mates after a meeting in Prague yesterday, which is this meeting in Prague of this new European political community, which is Macron's brainchild and, and, and Trust has been quite sceptical of it and, you know, in the run up to it was saying, you know, this isn't a sort of new iteration of the European Union, just to calm down any sort of Brexit truthers um, who, who might be watching who think the Brexit hasn't really happened. But she, they issued a joint statement last night and they're now, they're now really good pals, apparently. The, the EPC is useful um, for Britain in a number of ways. One is obviously that it shows that Britain has left the European Union but not Europe. It's still, you know, it's not retreating into isolation. Another is, given the war in Ukraine, it is another form in which Liz Truss can urge other nations to continue not just to take uh, the needs of Ukrainian forces, President Zelensky's demands uh, seriously, but also to take the knock-on consequences of Putin's invasion seriously. And that was something that, that she made clear in, in her uh, speech to the uh, opening session of this meeting. James, was there any update as a protocol? Because obviously we're getting the sense, at least, of warmer moods. But Yeah, and Leah Bragg was saying yesterday that maybe the protocol is a bit too strict. I think the big question is, is this like when Liz Truss became foreign secretary? If you remember, Seskovich came to Chevening, they went for a walk around the lake, all the mood music seemed to have improved. But then when it came to actual negotiations about where you could get to, the two sides were still too far apart. Or in this warmth and with all the other issues that both the UK and the EU side have to deal with, are you going to be able to get an agreement over the line? I, I, Fraser written a very good column in the Telegraph today about the European political community. And I think Liz Truss does deserve a lot of credit for going. I think it does. 
I think Emmanuel Macron deserves credit for having tried to construct something in which the Brits and other non-EU members can feel comfortable. You know, this is the first time, I think, since 2016, there has been a forum presented, presented which doesn't make the Brits feel like vegetarians in a steak-eating club. And I think that, and I think Liz Truss deserves credit for taking this opportunity to try, because, you know, I mean, I do think this when people say it's just a talking shop, you know, as we as we discussed yesterday, you know, at, at sometimes that talking is just a good thing inherently. Now, Isabel, we are on just remembering the day after uh, two weeks of conferences. We are on Friday, and I think as we discussed straight after the conference so on the Wednesday Liz Truss's speech did do something to calm some Tory nerves but she still has many problems of course Parliament's returning late next week what's your sense of where the Tory mood is at the moment? It's still not great and I think all of us will have had conversations with MPs in the hours and days after the conference finished where they've been talking about um, two things. One is that the party might need to go into opposition um, for a bit. And two is uh, their own career prospects and uh, the potential for meeting with headhunters and finding out what they can do outside of Parliament. Um, Now, the first, uh, look, you know, the kind of opposition that people in the Tory party would would like would last six months they'd have a sort of sabbatical and then they'd come back renewed and refreshed uh, with lots of ideas sounds lovely uh, that's, not how opposition, <laughs> that's not how opposition works generally uh, unless we're going to have even more elections uh, over the next few years which you know I think everyone including Brenda from Bristol would hope not and it's also as Labour and as the Tories you know learnt in the in the 90s and noughties often the problems that you develop while you're in government are much more intractable than you realise. And once you get into opposition, you end up having a much longer argument about what you stand for as a party. And indeed, some potentially not particularly great leaders um, along the way uh, who can drag you even further back. You know, that's what Labour and and the Tories uh, discovered from their recent long periods in opposition. Um, So that's one thing. Another thing is that actually... Uh, it's amazing how few of these MPs saying, oh, we need to go into opposition, have thought that they too might lose their own seat. Because when you go into opposition, it's because you've lost seats. Um, And obviously there are, you know, red wall MPs and others in um, quite vulnerable seats um, who are pretty uh, advanced in their post-parliamentary career planning. Um, But there are others who will be surprised um, that they too may lose their seat. And I think there's a sort of, um, you know, it's obviously been long enough since the Tories were in opposition for quite a lot of the people who were there at the time to have to have left Parliament or forgotten how rubbish it is to lose an election and how many colleagues, you know, are chucked out uh, without really expecting it and how long it then takes to actually find a new job. If you look at the Tories post-97, even some of their really big figures took a long time to get a new job outside of Parliament. And um, I think it's fair to say that the um, the cachet of an MP has dropped significantly since then. Um, And if you are the MP from the losing party, you're not very attractive to public affairs companies, for instance, because you have inroads into the opposition. And, you know, who cares about the opposition? It's X. MPs from the winning party who everyone wants to hear from. And if there's a lot of you and actually you're, you know, 
you've got few transferable skills because all you've really done over the t- your time in Parliament is being a member of various ginger groups which are irrelevant to the outside world and running with varying levels of success your own private office then headhunters sort of you know I've talked to headhunters about this they sort of look at MPs and go well you know actually being an MP has damaged your CV and so I think that's the kind of the grim reality that's uh, that's facing quite a lot of Conservative MPs at the moment. It's also a Scottish Labour experience isn't it which is when a huge number of people with the same same kind of CV emerge onto the jobs market at the same time, it becomes more difficult for them to find a job. You know, but, you know, while as, you know, if you were just, you know, even if your body's out of power, if they're just a couple of you going looking for things, you, you'll likely find something. If all of a sudden there's a huge cohort of you pouring onto a jobs market at the same time, your market value is, is much lower. And if you want to hear and read more about the standard of political class these days, then of course you need to read Isabel's book, Why We Get the Wrong Politician, which is ages like a fine wine. (laughs) Updated version, yeah, ages like a fine wine. And with that, thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.